Good morning, Bridge. Nice to see you today. I don't know about you, but when I walked out this morning, about 6.30 in the morning, I thought maybe we can have a white Christmas in South Florida. It was cold out there. I had to go back and get a jacket and come in. But uh, we're still far better off than Wisconsin and Michigan and all those places. But I'm glad you didn't let a little cold weather keep you from coming out today. I know uh, we had a lot who did, but uh, you're here and, and we're here and we're going to have a great time in the Lord. Amen. We already have. That was great worship this morning. I, I'm so thankful for uh, all the musical talent that God has given this church and, and their willingness to share it with us. Just amazing folks, they really are. Well, it's Christmas time, and uh, as I shared with you last week, Christmas and Easter are really hard times for pastors because, I mean, the story doesn't change. How many ways can you tell the story? And so every Christmas, you know, pastors are going, oh my goodness, what am I going to say this year? This is my 21st Christmas with you, you know? I've already told you more than I know. Well, thank you. Thank you for that. So I thought, okay, we're going to do a little something different. Let's take some of the aspects of the Christmas story. Let's take some tidbits. And remember, the word tidbit means a, a juicy morsel of food that we usually don't talk about at Christmas and, and try to bring something new into the story. So last week we talked about our Christmas tidbit was the road to Christmas. And we looked at the genealogy in Matthew. And just looking at the first seven, eight names of the genealogy, we discovered this, that the road to Christmas was paved with the lives of broken people. You know, God could have chose anyone he wanted, but the people he chose that were in the genealogy of Jesus, the, 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 Jesus, the family tree of Jesus, were all people like us. They weren't perfect by any stretch of the imagination. They weren't rich and they weren't famous. They were common folk. And you know, Christmas is going to have a sequel. Jesus is coming again. And the road to Christmas's sequel is going to be paved, is going to be heralded through the lives and through the witness of people just like us who are assembled here today. We are exactly the kind of people God uses to advance his kingdom. Now, some of us don't think that we could possibly be that person, but in fact, Scripture plays it out, that no matter what our past, no matter what our present, no matter what, God wants to use us for his glory, and he will use us to pave the way for the return of Jesus Christ. Now, today, in our Christmas tidbits, I want to talk about the chaos of Christmas for just a few minutes. The chaos of Christmas. I've been to a lot of really amazing Christmas pageants over the years. When we were in California, we got to go to the Crystal Cathedral, Robert Schuller's place. They had this amazing Christmas pageant that had won Emmys. Went to the one here at First, uh, First Baptist of Fort Lauderdale. If you haven't been to that one, there's one right here. It's amazing. But in these amazing presentations... Oftentimes, like I've seen they have angels in the ceiling. They're coming across on wires, and they're flying back and forth, and they're praising God, and you got heavenly choirs. And like the one portrayed here, there's Mary and Joseph with the, with the baby in the manger and the stars behind them. And I mean, all the wise men are there and shepherds and animals and all that. And man, we get the idea that this was just a majestic, amazing night full of peace. But the truth of the matter is, the first Christmas was filled with chaos. It was very chaotic. And all these people that we tend to, to remember and celebrate in the Christmas story, for them, the very first Christmas was anything but peaceful. It was filled 
with chaos. Well, let's look at a few of them. The first Christmas was filled with chaos for Zechariah and Elizabeth. Now, you're probably thinking, well, who's Zechariah? Were they at the manger? No, they weren't. They're actually the first characters of Christmas that we hardly ever talk about. So who are they? Well, in Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse 5, it says, In that time, the time of King Herod of Judah, there was a priest named Zechariah who belonged to the priestly division of Abijah. His wife Elizabeth was also a descendant of Aaron. Both of them were upright in the sight of God, observing all the Lord's commandment and regulations blamelessly. So here is this priest. can go all the way back to Aaron, who was, who was with Moses. And he's a priest. And he and his wife are living blameless lives before the Lord. Wow, wouldn't you like to be able to set, have the Bible say that of, me, of you or me, huh? That we're living blamelessly. And they kept all the Lord's regulations. Now, we tend to think of the Ten Commandments. But remember, in the Mosaic Law, there were over 600 commandments, 600 regulations that people had to follow, and they're doing it. And it goes on to say in verse 7, but they had no children, because Elizabeth was barren, and they were both well along in years. In this day, in this period of time, we have to understand that for a woman not to be able to bear a child was considered to be cursed by God. That woman was considered to be cursed by God. And she became a spiritual outcast. She became a social outcast. In this case, since it's a priest and his wife, they now are spiritual outcasts in their own religious faith because there is no descendant. They're both now well beyond the childbearing years. So this guy, Zachariah, as it goes on to say in verse 8, his division was on duty. In other words, the, the group of priests that he belonged to, it was their turn to serve before God in the temple in Jerusalem. And it says he was chosen by lot, by drawing straws or whatever way, colored marbles or whatever, according to the custom of the priesthood, to go into the temple of the Lord and burn incense, incenses. And when the time for the burning of the incense came, all the assembled worshipers were praying outside. So I want you to get the scene. So this priest now, Zechariah, who's living blamelessly in the sight of the Lord, gets to light the incense in the holy place of the temple. Now, now, now understand this. I mean, this will go right over our heads if we don't stop and, and, and camp out here for a second. Maybe once in a lifetime would a Jewish priest be able to go into the holy of holy place or the holy place and light the incense in worship to God. It, it was by lot. It was by pure chance. Your division had to be on duty, and, and by pure chance, out of all the priests that were on duty, you drew the right straw, and you got to go in and do it. So this is an amazing, amazing opportunity for Zechariah. He is like stoked. He is so excited. I bet he can't wait to go home to his wife Elizabeth and say, you know what I got to do? I got to light the incense. And so this, this is this, the setting. So it says, then an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing at the right side of the altar of incense. When Zechariah saw him, he was startled and was gripped with fear. It amuses me that sometimes the most surprised people when God appears in a worship service are the pastors. Right? I mean, here he is, the priest, and he's going and worshiping God and all this light. And all of a sudden, God shows up through an angel, and he's like scared to death. What's going on here? And so the angel appears to him. And says to him, Zechariah, your prayer has been heard. Not your prayers, but your prayer. 
What do you think that prayer was? For a child. They'd been praying all their lives for a child. They wanted a child. They wanted to remove the social, the spiritual stigma from them. And plus, he just wanted to have, he wanted to have a child that could carry on his name. And so the angel says, God's heard your prayer. You and your wife, Elizabeth, are going to bear a son. Man, how exciting that must have been. But then he immediately says, you're to name him John. Now that would have taken Zechariah back. He would have said, what? Say that again. You, you want me to name him John? Now why that would have taken him back is because this being his first child, his first son, he would name him after himself. This would be the custom. This would be the tradition. John was like way out there. Who, John? Who's John? But see, the John he's talking about is who? John the Baptist. Now, now how do they play into Christmas? Well, here's how they play into Christmas. Because in, God had revealed all through the Old Testament, through the prophets, that when Messiah finally came, before he actually started his earthly ministry, there would be a forerunner that would come in, in the power, in the likeness of Elijah. And he would prepare for the Messiah. He would go out and proclaim that the Messiah has arrived. He would go out and, and, and announce to the world, get the world ready for Messiah. And so that's who Zechariah's son's going to be. He's going to be this herald, this, this proclaimer of the coming of Messiah. He says, he will be a joy and delight to you, and many will rejoice because of his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. Now, meanwhile, all the people, Scripture says, are outside. They've been praying, and they're getting frustrated now, starting to look at their clocks, you know. What's wrong with this priest, man? I mean, how hard is it is to light some incense? Come on, man. We're waiting. We got to go home. They're really getting restless out there. Because Zechariah hasn't come back out. But when he comes out, they're going to be shocked, and here's why. Because back in this conversation with the angel, when the angel says, you're going to have a son, Zechariah says, now wait a minute, back the bus up. T tell me, what? what? How am I going to have a son? You realize that my wife and I, <coughs> we're not spring chickens anymore. We're not in our 20s, our 30s. We're well beyond the childbearing age. And so he begins to question the angel. And so he really wants a sign from the angel that this is really going to be true. And the angel says, okay, here's your sign. He says, do you know who you're talking to? I'm Gabriel. He said, I'm God's angel, Gabriel. I stand before God Almighty, and he sent me here. And he said, and because you refuse to believe the message that he sent me to tell you, you're not going to be able to speak a word. You will be mute until that boy is born. And that's what happens. <laughs> So the people are outside, impatient, and all of a sudden, he comes out, and he's not able to talk to him. He's like, like a madman. Can you just picture it? He's like waving, and signs, and heaven, and God, and angel, and all these things. And people knew that he had seen a vision of some kind, and so they're really taken back. And so immediately, the whole temple and all those who have come to worship are thrown into mass chaos. What is going on? Because Maybe the priests were the first one not to expect God to show up, but often it's the congregation, secondly, who don't expect God to show up, and now God showed up. What are they going to do with that? So it says, when his time of service was completed, he returned home. Oh, I wish I could have been a fly on the wall. 
when he went back home, don't you? Can you imagine? He comes in the door, and Elizabeth's probably, you know, getting, getting food ready to know about time, and he comes and going, and wow, the chaos. But remember, although it was a joyful announcement, he wasn't able to speak for the next nine months. And when he finally was able to speak at the dedication of the baby in the temple, when they said, what should we name the baby? And they were beginning to give the baby names. The angel let his tongue loose and he said, no, the baby's name is John. And all the people said, John, what are you talking about, John? Everyone was in chaos. Their life was in chaos. And ultimately their son would grow up John the Baptist, and he wasn't exactly socially accepted. He was one that wore camel's hair and ate wild locusts and honey. He was considered out there. It was filled with chaos for Zechariah and Elizabeth. First Christmas was filled with chaos for Mary and Joseph, that's for sure. We remember the story is Luke chapter 1, verse 26 says, In the sixth month, God sent the angel Gabriel again, same angel, to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. Now, this is the part of the story we, we really know. We get this where the Gabriel comes to Mary, and, and, and he begins to, to tell her what God's about to do in her life, that she's been found favored among all women on the earth, and that God was going to bless her womb, and she was going to give birth to Messiah. Now, as exciting as that might be, and although that was probably the dream of every Jewish young woman, to be the one to bring Messiah into the world, that's not how society would have received it. Here, this young woman who's betrothed in marriage. And remember, back in this time, marriages were arranged. So someone had arranged their marriage between Joseph and Mary, set it all up. And once that was arranged and the deal was settled that they would be the ones married, there was a one-year period that went on before they actually had the ceremony and before they consummated the union. They were considered legally married during that time. But that one year was to give the groom time enough to set up a household so that when he was formally married, he could bring his, his wife into their own home. But even more importantly, it was a one-year period that would ensure the purity of his fiancée, of his bride, that he wasn't getting damaged goods. And now here, Mary, Mary has become damaged goods. What always staggers me about this passage, Luke 138 says, she says, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. But the next words are, are what take my breath away. Then the angel left her. Do you get that? Angel didn't go to mom and dad and say, hey, mom and dad, it's okay. Your daughter's pure. She didn't do anything. Didn't go to the extended family, didn't go to the city council, didn't go to the rabbis, didn't go to anything in the world. Here this young, probably teenage girl, maybe between 15 and 19 years old, 
legally betrothed in marriage, comes out and says, I'm pregnant, but you got to understand, this baby in me, I've done nothing wrong. This is from God. This is conceived by the Holy Spirit. Who's going to believe that? Immediately, upon this proclamation by the angel, her life is thrown into chaos. And an element of that chaos would undoubtedly never depart her name. Don't you know, for the rest of her life, there was that element of society who every time Mary came around went, society can be cruel, can it? And don't you know they were cruel about her and about her family? Her life was thrown into chaos, and yet she said, knowing that, she said, I'm a servant of the Lord. Be it in me as you have said. Not only Mary, but Joseph. Joseph was betrothed to Mary. And before they came together, in other words, before they consummated the relationship, she was found to be with child. Now, that, the scripture adds from the Holy Spirit. But again, Joseph finds out that his fiance is pregnant. Oh, it's okay. It's from the Holy Spirit. Yeah, right. <laughs> because Joseph, her husband, was a righteous man and did not want to expose her to public disgrace, he had in mind to divorce her quietly. Joseph had several choices when he found out that Mary was pregnant. And he knew it wasn't him because they hadn't come together. He knew that. He knew, I'm not the dad. The most extreme choice that he had was he could have Mary killed. He could have her stoned to death as an impure, as a promiscuous woman. That was legitimate under the law of Moses. Secondly, he could publicly disgrace her and her family. He could make a big deal about it. He could drag her before the, the, the temple. He, he could drag her before the, 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 the council. And, and he could just rip her up and shame her so that she would forevermore be known as some kind of a harlot girl. His third choice, and the one he was considering, because he was a good man, he was a righteous man, and he didn't want to really hurt her. He was just going to give her a, a writing of divorce quietly, behind the scenes, just divorce her and move on with his life. But mark it down, he was getting rid of her. He was not going to take her. Then the angel appeared to him too. And he said, don't be afraid to take Mary home as your wife because what is conceived is hers from the Holy Spirit. She will give birth to a son and you will give him the name Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. Joseph obeyed the angel. And he took Mary to be his wife. Come on. I mean, we look back at this stuff and we, myth, we have mythological kind of expectations of them. But here's a young guy. He's probably in his mid-20s, maybe 30s, maybe younger. He's a carpenter. He's just a, an average Joe. And he's going to take this girl? Can you imagine what his family's saying? Can you imagine what his siblings are saying, what his mom and dad are saying? They're saying, Joseph, are you out of your mind? 
Why would you tarnish your name? Why would you tarnish our name with this promiscuous little fill in the blank? Come on, you know how your family is. And they're never confronted with anything like this. Right? Joseph's friends must have said, Joseph, are you out of your mind? Have you lost all sense? His life was filled with chaos. It wouldn't be two years later, it would be under two years later, even after Jesus is born, that Joseph has to pull up stakes and he has to move his whole family down to Egypt to flee from Herod's reprisals. Joseph, after that, kind of disappears from Scripture. He's nowhere to be found during the crucifixion, the resurrection, any of that. We, he just, he's gone. We have no idea what happened to him. He's probably the unsung hero of the Christmas story. But their lives were plunged into chaos and drama like we, we, we can't even understand today. Cast for the Magi. Remember the wise men who came? By the way, you know they, they never made it to the manger. You, you know that, right? The, they finally came to Jesus was already back home when they, when they finally found them. But, but the idea is they came from the east. We're assuming that they came from old Babylonia, modern-day Iraq. And so they traveled hundreds and hundreds of miles. And it says when they got to Jerusalem, they were asking all over the place, where's the king? Where's the baby? Where's the baby who was born king of the Jews? All that. And they're going, I mean, they had to just lift up everything. They left their homeland. They left their positions of prominence back in their homeland. And just to follow a star, God's spirit said, follow that star and you'll find the king. I mean, how chaotic is that? Their life was filled with chaos. And then later, because they defied Herod's proclamation that when they find the child, they come back and tell him so that he can go worship the child too. They defy that, putting their very lives at risk because if Herod catches them for deceiving them, he is going to execute them. It's chaotic for Herod. Scripture says in Matthew 2, 3, when King Herod heard this news, he was disturbed. When he heard that there might be a challenge to his throne, that there is some king allegedly born, come back next week and I'm going to share with you that there was an international expectation of a great world leader coming out of Israel at the time. This guy goes nuts. Now you got to remember that Herod was one of the most psychopathic monarchs to ever live and reign on planet earth. Herod killed his own wife. He killed his own heirs to his throne, his sons. He, he was so evil that knowing that no one would mourn his death, he made a proclamation before he died that at his death, certain prominent members of Jewish society were to be immediately executed so there would be some kind of mourning in Israel. He's disturbed. His life is filled with chaos. He's got to find that baby. He's got to get rid of that baby. And that led for the chaos for all of Judea. Because as we remember, when he finds out that the, the wise men had deceived him, he made a proclamation based on 
about the time the baby would have been born, for all the male children, two years and under, in Bethlehem to be killed. And so he sent his soldiers out, and they murdered hundreds, maybe thousands of babies. Parents certainly didn't welcome in the first Christmas. So the first Christmas is characterized by chaos. And everyone whose life is touched by the story of the first Christmas is characterized by chaos. So what's our Christmas tidbit? What's our take home today? This may all be a fascinating story, but, but how does it apply to me? How does it apply to you? God sends interruptions into our life. He did it back then. God sent a major interruption in the life of Zacchaeus and uh, Zachariah and Elizabeth. A major interruption in the lives of Mary and Joseph. Major interru- uh, interruption in the lives of the Magi, Herod, the whole population of Judea. And listen, God still sends interruptions into our lives. We can be just kind of coasting along. Everything's going good. All of a sudden, boom, out of nowhere something comes, right? We've all had it happen. How many of you had that happen in your life? I mean, all of a sudden, your your life is topsy-turvy and everything has just kind of gone nuts in your life. Well, see, God sends interruptions into our lives. And not not into the lives of, 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 of people who don't love them. Remember what it said about Zachariah and Elizabeth. It said they were blameless, blamelessly upholding the regulations of their faith. They were righteous people. And God invaded. Mary and Joseph had to be. God wouldn't have chose them if they were not righteous. But God sent a major interruption. Listen, understand this. God still sends interruptions into our lives. Now, what do we do when those interruptions come? That's the key. What do we do when they come? Let me give you four things really quick, and then we're done. First one is this. Don't get rattled. Don't get rattled. Peter said in 1 Peter 4.12, Dear friends, do not be surprised at the painful trial you're suffering as though something strange were happening to you. In other words... Peter, one of the original 12 disciples of Jesus, later in this this letter, he has two letters in the New Testament. And he says, listen, when things go crazy, when your life gets interrupted, and it's painful, because usually interruptions are painful, right? They're emotionally painful, sometimes they're physically painful, sometimes they're financially painful, sometimes they're relationally painful, sometimes. Usually interruptions are not welcomed. And that's the kind we're talking about. For believers, for people who are followers of Christ, we are to follow the example of those first Christmas characters. When God interrupted their life, they didn't get rattled. They didn't go crazy. They didn't say, oh, no, this can't be happening to me. This can't be happening. See, Peter says exactly that. He says, listen, when God sends an interruption to your life, don't get rattled. Don't think something strange is happening. In fact, he says, it's going to happen. Mark it down. At periods in our life, God is going to interrupt. Why? Because he hates us. No. Because he's taking us to a new place. He's going to teach us something about himself that we don't know and we wouldn't learn. Just coast and being comfortable where we're at in life. 
So don't get rattled. Seek God's perspective. Luke 134, Mary says, how will this be since I'm a virgin? Now, Zechariah was challenging the angel and saying he wants signs and all this kind of thing. Mary just says, okay, it's going to happen, but help me understand. What's God's perspective in this? Since I'm a virgin, knowing that she's going to get socially crucified. She's seeking God's perspective. God, what are you doing here? How's this going to happen? Why is this going to happen? Now, when our lives get interrupted, we need to seek God's perspective. And here's the reason why. Because oftentimes, the interruption has nothing to do with us. It's not about us. It's about what God is doing in someone else's life. When I get the interruption of a negative medical report, what's God doing? What's his perspective? Well, God is about to open up an entire new community for me to share the gospel with. I'm now going to be introduced to doctors that I don't know and nurses that I don't know and medical technicians that I don't know and other people who may find themselves in the same place that I'm in. And God's perspective might all be about sending us as a lifeline to them because they don't have Christ. They don't have the hope of God in them. And so God needs someone like us who live for him and who aren't rattled when he interrupts our life, but understands, God, you are doing something and help me to get my eyes off that something in my life. Help me not to obsess with the challenge, with the, with the emotional pain, the physical pain, or whatever that I'm going through right now, and help me now to get the blinders off and begin to look around me at what you may be doing and where you're leading me. Christmas wasn't about Mary. Christmas wasn't about Joseph. It wasn't about Zachariah. It wasn't about Elizabeth. It wasn't about the Magi. It was about humanity. Because God was finally sending Messiah into the world. And through Messiah, the sins of humanity could be forgiven. And the promise of eternal life could be extended to every man, woman, boy, and girl on planet Earth. Third, trust God's purpose. Trust God's purpose in all this. Mary said, I'm the Lord's servant. May it be to me as you have said. Then the angel left her. She trusted God so much that even though her life was about to be thrown into chaos that no young engaged woman ever wants to face, she believed that God is a God of love. And if God was going to do something like that, that he must have an enormous purpose in mind. And yet we need to remember that when God sends interruptions into our life, that there's a purpose for that interruption. God's just not doing it randomly. God's not just doing it subjectively. God is working in our lives. And his purpose is probably multiple-fold. As we said, his perspective, it might be to reach out to people around us, and we need to consider his perspective and get our eyes off the problem and start looking around us, but also purpose in our life. Because, see, here's the truth about it. When, When we're comfortable in our walk with Christ and everything's going good, do we grow much? No, we don't grow much. We just enjoy those times. 
When do we really seek the Lord? When do we really get on our knees? When do we really get hungry to read his word? When he interrupts our lives. And see, so often God will do that, not to punish us, but to get us to a new place, to teach us something new about him, to, to, to further uh, strengthen our relationship with him and, and, and make it more intimate than it's ever been before. Romans 8, 28 says this, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Again, I encourage you, I, several weeks ago, we looked at this verse, and I encourage you to memorize it. If you haven't memorized it yet, memorize it now. Write down the reference, commit it to memory. Make that the end of 2017's goal, I'm going to memorize this scripture. And why? Because when life gets interrupted, the first verse in the Bible you ought to go to and quote is that verse. You gotta say, okay, I'm not gonna get rattled because I know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him. And God, you know I love you. And I'm called according to your purpose. So whatever the purpose is, God, I'm yours. Finally, embrace his promise. 1 Peter 4.13 says, but rejoice that you participate in the sufferings of Christ so that you may be overjoyed when his glory is revealed. Never forget that it is for the challenges that we successfully endure in faith that God rewards us. He doesn't reward us for all the blessings he gives us. He rewards us for us being faithful when things are, are, are chaotic in our lives and when things aren't pleasant in our lives and when, 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 when we're kind of wanting to run away and get rattled. But when we endure and persevere in faith, God will reward us one day so much greater than anything that we've had to endure in this life. See, again, we need to always be mindful that life is preparation for eternity. It's not about here. It's about what's to come. So, chaos of Christmas, maybe your life in this Christmas is characterized by chaos for you. Maybe it's financial chaos and you've lost a job or you might be losing a job or things are just really super tight for you right now. You've had some kind of financial reversal. Maybe it's medical, a health issue. Maybe it's relational. But whatever it is, you're in chaos right now. Well, don't get rattled. Don't get rattled. Don't lose hope. Don't despair. Seek God's perspective. Start doing this. Swivel that head. Instead of doing this, start looking around and say, what are you up to, God? What are you doing? Who am I supposed to encourage? Who am I supposed to reach out to? See, as long as you will focus on your challenge, you're going to stay discouraged. You're going to stay depressed. It's only when you get your eyes off yourself and start looking for somebody else that you're going to feel emotional relief and you're going to feel hope again in your life. Trust God's purpose. God loves you, and he's got a purpose, and that purpose is greater than anything you can imagine. Embrace his promise. He'll bless you for it. Next week, I'm going to talk to you about the timing of Christmas. It's a really exciting message I hope you'll be back for. Right now, let's bow our heads. Father, we love you. And God, thank you that we can take time to look back at the first Christmas and look at it through a different filter than we, we usually do this time of year. 
Instead of a time of great partying and celebration, God, let's remember that for the people who lived that first Christmas, it it was chaotic. It was life-threatening. It was socially disgraceful. It wasn't a happy time. But yet, God, all of them responded in faith to you because they were men and women of God and they believed you above their circumstances. And God, I pray for every man and woman here today whose life is characterized by chaos this Christmas, whatever it be. And God, I hope that right now your Holy Spirit will minister with their spirit and let them know that you're there and you know about it and you love them. And not only are you going to walk through it with them, you're already paving the way. You're already opening doors they don't even know about. God, help them to get their eyes off the problem and start looking around and and see who they might be a blessing to this Christmas, who they might encourage. And Lord, help them to see the end, the finish line, which is not this life, which is heaven. And know that if we suffer with you here during this life, then we're going to be glorified with you in the life to come. And God, that's going to mean a whole lot more to us than anything that happens to us in this life. So minister to every need here, Lord. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.